If you'd like to follow along with me this morning, I'm in Matthew chapter 12 and going to start at verse 38 through 50. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south shall rise up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. While he is still speaking to the multitudes, behold, his brothers, mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. And someone said to him, behold, your mother, your brothers are standing outside to speak to you. But he answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother, my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Imagine what it uh, must have been like for Jesus being the Son of God, now having taken on human flesh and trying to convince the people of Israel that you really are their Messiah. He knew what they were expecting and the one for whom they were hoping, a strong leader to overthrow Rome and restore Israel's uh, greatness and prosperity. That's what they want. But he knows what they need. They need a Savior who can deal with their sins and restore their relationship to God. As well as one who fulfills the covenants and promises. Yeah. I I was trying to. I I noticed. Well, it won't stay. Okay, let's try that. Is that better? Okay. Okay. Uh, His task is to lead them to the place where they see their need for a Savior and show them that He is indeed their Messiah and Savior. 
and most importantly, to lead them to the place where they truly believe in him as their Messiah and Savior. Part of this process in leading to them, leading them to that place of faith is fulfilling the prophecies about him from the Old Testament. You know, the stories around his birth fulfilled those prophecies. The, uh, John the Baptist was the prophesied forerunner. Uh, his teaching that, that he would give to them, uh, that Matthew gives to us in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, uh, shows the real intent of the law of Moses. But probably most significantly, it is his miracles that demonstrate his power and authority. And the critical thing is to lead the people to where they say with confidence from their heart, yes, I believe that Jesus is our Messiah, the anointed of God. And there were many whose hearts were open to him. But there were many as well who were outright hostile toward him. And many in between. Maybe not hostile, but not fully believing either. And this is what we see in our passage today. Different, let's call it dimensions of of, of faith. Some skeptical. Some hostile, some superficial, and then there are those who truly believe in Jesus. And so I've entitled the passage, Dimensions of Faith, but let's look at the context now. It's kind of like Jesus is having a boxing match, not with fists, but words, with the Pharisees. And Jesus delivers a solid punch with the triple miracle that we saw last week. He cured a man of demon possession and the inability to see and speak. He just cured it all, cast out the demons, the man could see, and the man could speak. And the crowd cheers for Jesus, and they begin to see that, yeah, yeah, maybe he is our Messiah, the son of David. But the Pharisees counterpunch by saying, Jesus does his miracles by the power of Satan. And then Jesus, it's like, lands a series of punches, one after another, in his response to that accusation. He shows how irrational their position is, their thinking is, that if if he's doing that, these miracles by the power of Satan, then that means Satan is working against himself. That just doesn't make any sense. His miracles actually demonstrate that the kingdom of God has come And in reality, he is binding Satan, the strong man, so that he might plunder his house and take back those taken hostage. And then he warns them of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And then he traces that source of unbelief of the religious leaders to their evil hearts because he says that what we say and what we do is an overflow of our heart. So the Pharisees, boy, they're kind of knocked back on their heels after this, you know, barrage of blows by Jesus. And in desperation, they say, then show us a sign that you really are the Messiah. 
And that brings us to our passage today. We're going to look at the failure to truly believe in the first portion of this passage. We begin with the demand for a sign. Let's look at verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. Now, what's the irony here? The irony is that Jesus had already been giving them one after another authenticating signs in his miracles. Remember back when John the Baptist asks, he began to have doubts, he's in prison, began to have doubts, and he says, are you really the coming one? Are you, are you really the son of David, the Messiah? How did Jesus respond to John? He says, John, take a look at what I'm doing. The lame walk, the leopard are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. In other words, Jesus pointed John the Baptist to his miracles as evidence of who he really is. And so this request from the Pharisees, it's not a sincere inquiry as to who Jesus really is, but rather it's a challenge from their evil heart. And both Mark and Luke, in their account of this, they tell us clearly that the Pharisees were testing him in asking for this sign. They want to see something what they consider to be really spectacular. But they have totally dismissed all of the miracles that he has done. And if he did something else, they would somehow dismiss that as well. Their request comes from an evil and unfaithful heart. And Jesus continues... Yet no sign shall be given to it, this evil and adulterous generation. No sign shall be given to you, but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Now when Jesus says, no sign will be given to you, he doesn't mean that he will only do one more miracle, and that will be the sign of Jonah, because there are many miracles that follow this event. He means, okay, If you want a convincing sign, if you really want a convincing sign, I will give you a convincing sign. It won't be what you expect. It will be the sign of Jonah the prophet. And then he begins to explain what he means by the sign of Jonah the prophet. Verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The story of Jonah was and is familiar to to most people. You know, Jonah the prophet was sent by God to Nineveh uh, to warn them of coming judgment, but he was rebellious and didn't want to go, so he, he embarked on a ship going in the opposite direction of Nineveh, thinking that he could run away from God. And the Lord caused the storm at sea to come, and Jonah ended up being cast overboard and was swallowed by a great fish. And Jonah chapter 1, verse 17 tells us that he was in that fish for three days and three nights. 
And then the fish vomited Jonah out. And then he went on and completed his mission. So Jesus is drawing an analogy here. Just as Jonah was buried, so to speak, in the fish for three days, he says, so I, the Son of Man, will be buried in the earth for three days and three nights. And although Jesus doesn't explicitly say it here, the implication is that like Jonah, he will rise after that time. Now, just a, an explanatory note about something here in case this catches your attention. Um, don't be troubled by the expression, three days and three nights, that he will be in the heart of the earth, that he will be buried in the tomb for three days and three nights. When in reality, Jesus was actually in the tomb only about 36 hours, buried on Friday evening, and then all day Saturday, and then arose early Sunday morning. He's using the experience of Jonah to simply parallel what will be his experience, and simply quotes it to apply to apply to himself in to make the parallel. In many other places, when Jesus goes on to talk about his resurrection, he says, on the third day, I will, I will rise on the third day. And the Jews reckoned time as any portion of a day was considered a day and night. Any portion of a day was considered a day and night. So Friday was the first day. That's one day and night. Saturday, complete day and night. Second day and night. Sunday, third day, the portion of that day was considered a day and night. So in that way, idiomatically speaking, we have three days and three nights. So now the important thing is, so what is Jesus saying here? He is saying that the convincing sign that will validate him as the Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of God, beyond any doubt, will be his resurrection. You want a sign? That's the sign that will provide convincing evidence, convincing proof. And the resurrection of Jesus is the validating evidence of who he is, that he is indeed the Son of God. It was the resurrection that convinced the disciples. It was the resurrection that the disciples, that the, that the disciples preached to prove to others that Jesus is the Son of God. And the resurrection remains today as the conclusive and validating evidence for the truth of Jesus and Christianity. Everything hinges on the resurrection. And God has given us the resurrection as an historically validated event upon which we can build our faith. We know that Jesus is true. We know the gospel is true. That Christianity is true because of the resurrection. If you are ever doubting 
the truth of Jesus? Is it really real? Did it really happen? Is it really true? If you're ever doubting the truth of Christianity, go back to the resurrection. The resurrection is the historically validated, convincing evidence. The resurrection took place. That's the proof that Jesus is who he says he is. Well, because of their refusal to believe in him and the hardness of their hearts, Jesus then warns them of judgment for their unbelief. Verse 41. The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is continuing here with his analogy of Jonah and says, when Jonah actually went to preach at Nineveh, after he was in the fish, got thrown out, he hurried off to Nineveh. The people, when he preached, the people accepted Jonah's word as truth, and they repented. And in the coming judgment, Jesus says here, those notoriously godless, heathen, Ninevites, because they repented, will actually be able to condemn you because they repented and you did not. Even though, he says, you have the additional advantage of something far greater than Jonah being present. And when Jesus says something far greater than Jonah is here, he's of course referring to himself, but not just to his person, but rather that in him, the kingdom of God is present. The power of God is present like never before. And you have seen it, but you have rejected it and failed to believe and repent. And therefore, judgment awaits. And then he expresses the same thought again using another illustration from the Old Testament, verse 42. The queen of the south shall rise up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. This is a reference, the queen of the south, to the queen of Sheba. In the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 10, Sheba was in southwest uh, Arabia. Today it would be the country of Yemen. And so that's where this queen, from where she came to visit Solomon, she had heard of Solomon and his wealth and his wisdom and made the effort and traveled a long distance, Jesus says, from the ends of the earth. She traveled to Israel to see him and receive his wisdom and learn of his God. And the point is, again, something is greater than Solomon. Something greater than Solomon is here. Again, Jesus, the son of David, bringing the kingdom of God far greater than Solomon and is in their midst. They don't have to even travel to see it like the queen of Sheba did. But they reject him, and they do not repent and believe, and they will face a stricter judgment. 
Jesus gives yet another warning to them as he speaks to different, the different people and where they are with respect to their relationship to him, their thoughts about him, their so-called faith in him. And he gives a warning here for superficial belief. He now tells a somewhat enigmatic parable or story. It's a little difficult to understand. Jesus uses here the example of what may happen in the demonic realm to illustrate what was then happening in Israel. It may sound totally foreign and strange to us, but not so much to those of the first century. Let's try to go through this. I'll explain it the best I can as we go through it. Verse 43. Now, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, a demon has been cast out of a person. Okay, that's the unclean spirit going out of a man. It's been cast out. It, the demon, the unclean spirit, passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. The point is that when this demon is cast out, he's looking for another individual where, where, that, that, that he may enter, that he may, that, that he may possess, if you will. And the point is that he doesn't find another suitable host to enter another person because the region where he is is uninhabitable. There are no people there. It's a waterless area. So there are no people around there. Verse 44. Then it says, the demon says to himself, I will return to my house from which I came. In other words, he says, I'll go back to the person from whom I was just cast out. I'll go back to him. And this tells us that these unclean spirits, demonic beings, they must must occupy someplace, occupy a person. And that's what this demon is seeking to do. And when it comes, it finds it, that is his, the, the individual from whom he had been cast out, He finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. So, when he gets back to the person, he finds it different than when he had been cast out. Now, it's swept and put in order. It means that the individual's life has shown some kind of change. There's some kind of, let's say, moral improvement that has taken place. But he also finds it unoccupied. It is not that individual, while making some changes, showing some moral improvement, has not been occupied by another presence, implying the presence of Jesus. It's not been occupied by the presence of Jesus. 
Verse 45. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and they live there. The demon gets seven other demons to go and inhabit that person with him from whom he had originally been cast out. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. It's obvious that the person is much worse off now than he was before. There was only one demon possessing him. Now he's got eight demons possessing him. And then Jesus makes a statement of application about this story that he just told about this demon. This is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Here, Jesus applies this story of the man and the demons. He applies this story to the people of Israel. This story is an illustration of what will happen to people who hear about Jesus, but do not truly believe in him. Let me try to explain maybe a little further. The point of this story is not about demons or what demons do or can do. That is simply taken as true. And Jesus uses the truth and reality of the activity of demons, which was apparently well known at that time, to illustrate the choice that Israel and really all people must make about Jesus. The man in the story had a demon cast out by Jesus, but really didn't believe fully that Jesus was the Messiah. His life was better. Maybe he made some changes in his life, moral reforms. But Jesus was never really part of his life. He never really, to use an expression that we often use today, he never really invited Jesus into his life. And so the demon was able to return because there was no other presence there to keep him from returning. And he returned with seven other demons. The last state of the man was worse than the first. And Jesus is saying that if he defeats Satan and they do not accept him, then Satan's power will have a greater hold on them in the future. This passage uniquely emphasizes the evils of a superficial and nominal faith, but not truly believing in Jesus, warning the listeners that their unbelief will leave them worse than they were before Jesus came. So Jesus is really in intense debate with those who are rejecting him. And I think he now takes this opportunity to bless those 
who are following him, who truly do believe in him. And that's how we conclude this chapter. Verse 46. While he was speaking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. And someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. They want to speak to you. Well, Jesus has now moved into a house. And there are still large crowds there. The house is just jammed with people, so much so that his family who have come to see him um, cannot, they, they cannot get in. And so Jesus receives word that his biological family is present outside the house. His mother and his brothers, most likely his sisters, are there as well. What did they want? Matthew does not tell us. He just says they want to speak with you. Mark tells us, a little additional insight here from the Gospel of Mark, Mark tells us that they thought he had lost his mind. And they have come to take him home with them. We might say today that they're staging an intervention. His, famous, his family obviously did not understand Jesus' ministry at this point. He said, what about Mary? You know, Mary's a godly woman. Well, it may be that she had a lapse in her faith, just as John the Baptist experienced as well. But we know later on they will all come from, from, from indications. They will all come to, to understand who Jesus is and truly believe in him. Verse 48. But he answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and, and who are my brothers? You know, this is a rhetorical question Jesus asks. Who really is my family? Who are they to whom I am closest and have the bond that we can call family? Verse 49, and stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In this setting, Jesus is contrasting all of the unbelief and rejection of the people that he had been experiencing. All of that rejection. He's contrasting it with those who are before him, who've gathered to hear him, and who have truly believed in him. And they were sitting at his feet to learn from him. And he points to them and says, this is my family. These are the ones closest to me. These are those who do the will of the Father, believing that he has sent me. These are now my brothers and my sisters and those even as close as my mother. So what do we take from this passage? What does all this mean for us? Well, I want to suggest three things. First of all, the resurrection is the ultimate 
convincing sign of who Jesus is. Take this with you. Jesus responds to their sinful and unbelieving request for a sign with the answer that will conclusively show him to be the Son of God and Savior of the world. And that answer was true for the Pharisees. It was true for the disciples. It was true for the early church. And it has remained true for these many generations. Thomas Arnold is a, was a professor at Oxford and one of the world's great historians. And this is what he said. I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better, fuller evidence of every sort. So the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign which God has given us that Christ died and that he rose again from the dead. Historical evidence of the resurrection is clear. Henry Morris says this, It is no exaggeration, therefore, to maintain that the bodily resurrection of Christ is as certain as any fact of history can be. If there, if there is anything at all in which we can believe with absolute confidence, it is the fact that Jesus Christ died, he was buried, and then conquered death and is now alive. The resurrection is the ultimate sign God has given us upon which we can build our faith. If you are ever doubting the truthfulness of Jesus and the gospel and Christianity, remember the resurrection. The resurrection is the solid bedrock foundation of our faith. Jesus says, this is the sign by which you can know that I am the Son of God and the Savior. The second thing I want you to take with you is the peril of a nominal faith. This is the concern expressed in the story of the man from whom a demon had been cast out and the demon brought back the seven more to re-inhabit the man. And Jesus is making the point here that mere association with him or Christian things are not enough. Mere agreement with Christian teachings is not enough. Hearing about Jesus is not enough. Warm feelings about Jesus are not enough. Polite deference to Jesus is not enough. 
moral reforms are not enough. A positive disposition toward Jesus is not enough. Full acceptance of Jesus is required. And if that doesn't happen, the last state will indeed be worse than the first. Because, as Jesus said in our passage last week, if we are not truly for him, we're against him. And therefore, the final state of that person for having rejected Jesus will indeed be one of destruction. The third thing I want you to remember is the blessing of true faith in Jesus. In claiming that his followers are now his family, his true family, Jesus is not being disrespectful to his earthly family, nor is he suggesting that we should be disrespectful to ours. He is saying, though, that there is a priority with Jesus, and there is a bond that is closer and stronger and ultimately more important than our earthly families. And that is to be rightly related to Jesus. Whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. What a privilege and blessing to know that he invites us into his family. And he looks upon us, those who truly believe in him, not those who are perfect, but those who simply believe in him. He looks upon us as members of his family, those who are closest to him. And that means that all of us, that all who are members of his family, we are members together. And that gives us a special bond of unity as well. And we are to see each other, sisters and brothers and mothers and fathers in Jesus' family. This is the community into which, the family into which we are brought by Jesus. And we have that privileged relationship with him and with one another. When we come to him and truly believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and the only Savior. Let's pray. Thank you again, Heavenly Father, for your word that you've given to us. Thank you that you have not left us without a witness to our faith, a foundation for our faith, that the resurrection serves, Lord, as that solid foundation in the midst of a world of skeptics and critics and doubts. We have the reality and the truth and the evidence of the resurrection. And that makes all the difference. And we're thankful, Lord, that we have that solid foundation for our faith. Lord, we pray 
that if there be any who at this point simply have a nominal faith, but have never truly believed in Jesus, put their full trust in Him, that you might draw them to yourself even today, Lord, in true saving faith. May they realize the lostness of their current thinking. And draw them to yourself. Show them their need. Show them the sufficiency of Jesus, the only way, the only Savior. And Lord, may we leave today encouraged and grateful that we are part of your family, your brothers, and your sisters. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.